0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. This conversation is with actor, writer, and producer and amazingly talented person, Tina Fey. You know Tina, of course, from her work on Saturday Night Live, her best-selling book or movies, and also for creating and starring in 30 Rock. My conversation with Tina took place in front of a live audience at the 2017 World Science Festival.
1: Good evening. Hi, everybody. Hi, Alan. (laughs) How are you? It's nice to be here on such a great day for science.
0: (laughs) 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 Tina was supposed to be interviewing me about my new book, but like many interviews, many, many good interviews, it turned out to be just a conversation between the two of us. I think one of the key attributes of good communication is people paying attention to each other. But I mean, really paying attention, really listening, not just having dueling monologues. I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that a fundamental tool used by actors, a kind of deep listening, can be used by anyone. The way I learned it was by studying improvisation. And although anyone can apply these principles, it's always fun to run into someone who learned it the way I did. It turns out that Tina Fey and I both began our careers in the field of improvisation, and in fact with the same company, the Second City. Tina worked in the Chicago company of Second City, and I worked in the New York company and we were both trained in improvisation by the great Viola Spolin, but Viola's improv training was not to teach us how to be funny. Instead, it was all about relating and connecting, which, of course, is the subject of these podcasts. At one point in our conversation, I told Tina what a profound effect Viola Spolin's improv training had had on me, and not just as an actor, but in my whole life. And I wondered if she'd felt the same way.
1: I did. I felt uh, that it was completely transformative. The, uh, the, uh, one of the core ideas uh, in improvisation is, is to agree, to say yes and, right? To agree is the yes, and then the and is to contribute something of your own. And it's something that once you get in the habit of doing it as an improviser, I don't know if you find the same thing, that I, it's just the way you think about things. And if I meet someone in a, in a work situation or someone who, who's starting from a place of no... Like, well, I don't think we're gonna be able to do that or yeah. you know, I was just like, Oh, why would you why would you start there? Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like it really sticks to yeah. you. Did you feel the same?
0: Oh, very much so. Except once in a while I think about this and I'm I yes and comes to mind often when I'm talking to somebody. But if I'm talking to somebody who's saying to me, you know, I was wearing my tinfoil hat this morning <laughs> yeah. and it really helps. I want to be able to say yes, and then I want to say, "And you're completely crazy."
1: Yes, and, yeah. Like, yes, and goodbye. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> oh, here comes you, my bus. Uh, yeah,
0: here comes my bus, and <laughs> we're not even on the street corner. <laughs> so, wh- what? Uh, wh- how do you handle that? How do you? How do you? What do you say yes to?
1: I'm trying to think of examples that, you know, of course, people in our work, mostly it's sort of a, a production question where they'll say like, oh, well, we couldn't possibly, yeah. no, we like your idea, but we couldn't possibly get that done in time and this and that. And it was to pause and say, well, what if we, let's just take a minute and what if we did the, you know, it, it, you just open your mind up to being able to get things done. Um, yeah. Uh,
0: I, guess, I guess it's possible to agree with some underlying premise too. Right. Like yes, I, that's right. We got to worry about time. That's that's so important. Yes. How about if we do this? That should save some time. That, right. Yeah. Right.
1: Trying to to and, to be the and to yeah. add to the.
0: Because in so many of us, and I hear myself say it. I I I go. I get the yes part, and then I say but.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. But. <laughs> and
0: that's a good <laughs> substitute for no. It is. <laughs> Tina asked me about the work we do at the Alder Center for Communicating Science because improv is a key part of how we train scientists to talk to the rest of us clearly and vividly. By now, the team at the Alder Center has trained over 12,000 scientists.
1: Have any of the scientists left their careers to pursue improv (laughs) full-time? You because know, in our in tragic. our first
0: in our first group, yes, we had somebody. Oh
1: no! <laughs> it's but it, he
0: doesn't do it full time. And I know a scientist in Israel who's a great uh, co- a computer biologist. What do you call it? A computational biologist, who improvises. Uh, what? What is it? Uh, a computational uh, what is, biologist. What is that? You stick your hand in the computer. It tells you what's wrong. With. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. I didn't want to show off, but I did sort of know that a computational biologist uses computer algorithms to find patterns in biological systems. But I wanted to get back to how my friend, the Israeli scientist, uses improv to help his team communicate. So he improvises with an improvising troupe every week. Yeah. And he uses improvising techniques to keep his team in the, in the lab doing good teamwork and and. Helping them motivate themselves, he it uses improv the same way we teach uh, uh, scientists to do it in our in our courses.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I I I believe improv can really work miracles. It can connect people who cannot connect in any other way. It uh, it keeps you tethered. It keeps you present in a at a time when it's very increasingly difficult for us all to be present with each other. Um, so I think you, my God, you're so smart to have. To have figured out that well, it it came out
0: of me, you know. It's it's the process of improvisation. What comes to the surface is going to be good, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out to really land on people, then you realize you're doing something valuable, and you do more of it. Yeah, that's all it is. It's just following my nose.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had I I have
0: a daughter who, when she was eight, she, she used to say. I, I would say, I'm, I'm cold. My nose is so cold. It's sure your nose is cold. The circulation can't get out that far. <laughs> Don't you love it when kids are smart and yeah. funny like that? Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> it's not so long.
0: You're, you you, you have an 11-year-old. I have an 11-year-old
1: you, and a 5-year-old, 2 daughters. And
0: the 11-year-old is doing something to Oh,
1: big. my, yes. I, I tried to, actually, I was applying a, a technique from Alan's book last night on my 11-year-old because she has a, a, a very very large and serious presentation tomorrow about Finland. Uh, <laughs> and I told her, I was like, you would think she was trying to pass the bar tomorrow. <laughs> and so she has to give an eight-minute presentation, and so uh, she, and she didn't want to do it for us again. So anyway, so we, uh, we used a technique in the book, and we asked her to give us the presentation in gibberish, but for us to try to still understand it.
0: You know what gibberish is, right? It sounds like a real language, but it's total nonsense.
1: Just
0: like, like gibberish. I guess most people know what gibberish is, but I wanted to make sure the audience understood how we use it in improv. Gibberish helps you use your whole body. Mm-hmm. It, get, it gets you out of the, the thing where you... You communicate, you feel, so many of us think that communication is getting the message right and saying the exact right words, and somehow that communicates what we want to communicate. In fact, it's everything. It's the tone of voice. It's the look on our face. It's the body language we use. Mm -hmm. All of that is really contributing an enormous amount to to what we're communicating, and it can help the people uh, get it better. So, what, you want to do a little, uh, like, we'll, we could do a little scene. Yes. And, and do it in gibberish yeah. and make it a game, because usually these are all in the form of games. And you all could try to figure out what the situation is. Well, yes. who, who are these two people and what, what's happening between them? You may never get it. depends on okay. how lucky we are. This is
1: what we said that we were going to do, right? Yeah, yeah. This is good. we have like a relationship and a situation which we have not rehearsed.
0: what did you sketch Uh The audience is having a little trouble figuring out what our relationship is because we're basically just standing there talking at each other. Our tone of voice isn't yet communicating what's under the gibberish and neither is our body language. I seem to be imploring her to do something but it's not clear
1: what.
0: Finally, Please. Tina follows a basic rule in improv. When you're stuck, no. go to the place, use the place, what Viola Spolin calls the where. So Tina crosses the stage and does something with what seems to be some sort of equipment, but I can't tell what it is because her back is to me. I'm watching her carefully and I see her arms moving. I'm trying to get as much information by observing as I can. She comes back and she holds out her arms as if to dance with me. Ah, I think. She's been turning on a record player over there and now we're dancing. (laughs) This week, the blue. <laughs> we, were pre- now. we were pretty Russian. Our our
1: gibberish was pretty who got,
0: who
1: was got pretty got Russian. You Never know what you never know oh, where. Who, it's who going has to any
0: idea what was going on
1: there? Does anyone have any idea who those two people were to each other? What their relationship might have been? <laughs> What was it? An old man with dementia. I think that was me. <laughs> No, not an old man with dementia. <laughs> but just keep guessing. Neighbors? Neighbors. Wanna go on a date? Yeah. Yeah. Teacher, yes, who yes, said that?
0: He was the teacher, right?
1: Yes, the student,
0: yes, the student yes, wants to go on a date the with the teacher. The student was very
1: asking good. the teacher to go to prom.
0: Good. See, yeah. But good, what's, what's fun about this, regardless of how many people we conveyed it to, <laughs> what's fun is it was a very hard thing to do, so we had to find ways to physicalize it, mm-hmm. to communicate it not only to, to you watching but to each other so we could move through this encounter that we didn't know where it came from or where it would go. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty hard one. I never did one that hard.
1: That was like, it was a very specific uh, yeah. relationship.
0: Sometimes when we're trying to communicate something difficult, we seem to be speaking gibberish without even knowing it. That's when we're using some incomprehensible jargon. We started to talk about that and then drifted away. But Tina brought us back.
1: Let's talk some more about jargon.
0: Yeah. And how
1: do you believe it to be a a curse in some ways?
0: Every day you run across some kind of jargon. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because if it takes five pages to say something you can say in one word, then it makes sense to use that word as long as you're talking to somebody who knows what the word means. Yeah,
1: like kofefe. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank goodness there's a small group of people who know what that means. (laughs)
1: Very small. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, "Wow, you're going to the mat on that one." Okay.
0: Do you? How do you do when you hear scientific jargon?
1: I do terribly. I am. I would. I am. Do not think of myself as a science person. I try not to. Even say that out loud around my daughters because they like science and I want them to continue. I take a science, I took a science class with both of my daughters. It's like at the across the street at the natural history, and I'm, I'm always wrong. I'm always answering in my head, and I'm like arthropod. No, not. <laughs> uh, I'm terrible with your... Like, I'm the kind of person, I can't memorize the names of flowers. Oh,
0: I'm bad at that, too. My wife, Arlene, is so good at that, so I make up names. The flowers? Wow, look at that great (laughs) hydrophloxia. She knows I don't know anything, and she just laughs at me. When we come back after the break, Tina and I have a little surprise for the audience. It's a special guest I invite up from the front row. Brian Green, the well-known physicist and best-selling author. We're going to put him to a test. We're going to see if he can explain some pretty tough physics to Tina without ever lapsing into jargon. And the catch is, Tina's going to have to actually know what he's talking about. This was fun. Stay tuned.
2: On December 14, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, Mild Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, Mild Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. You're listening to Clear and Vivid,
0: and now back to my conversation with Tina Fay. I bet you, if we worked on it, Pardon? If we worked on this, yeah. you, we could get somebody to help you understand something really complicated.
1: You could try. I would be a really, I'm a tough customer on it because I'm.
0: Well, be as tough as you. can I'm going to just pick somebody who looks like a scientist. And... <laughs> you look. At you. Are you a scientist? Would you help us? Yeah. Now we've never met before. Never.
1: never.
0: <laughs> this is the great Brian Green, as you all know. Hello, Brian. So have a seat. Me...
1: Hello.
0: So uh, do you want to do you want to get a topic maybe from the audience, Brian? That anybody. Hey, what, what are we going to do with the topic? Discuss You're going it? to explain something complicated to Tina, and uh, Tina has a buzzer here, and anything she doesn't understand. She'll just, she'll buzz you. If she's not following, remember we said the whole point is to help the other person follow you. So if she's not following you, she'll let you know. You won't even have to read it on her face.
1: Should I test this? Oh, okay.
0: Oh, wow. It's a, it's a long Fantastic.
3: one. Sure. Uh, yeah, we can throw out some, some topics. Yeah, a string theory. I heard string theory. Let's do that. I never, never explained that before. That, that's what a, was that's that? a good what? one. String theory. String theory. String, string. string theory. Okay. Yes.
1: You're so screwed. (laughs) So dumb. All right.
3: Go. So string theory. It's um, our attempt to unify the general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics in a way... I don't know anything. So so let's start with general relativity. Great. That's a theory of the force of gravity. Mm -hmm. I'm good. We good on gravity. We're good. (laughs) Quantum mechanics is a theory of... Matters, okay. very small scales, how the particles okay. interact, behave, okay. evolve, by the Schrodinger equation. But-
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: We don't need the Schrodinger equation. So, so our goal is to be able to have a single theory that can put together the laws of gravity mm-hmm. and the laws of quantum physics. So we have one unified mathematical description of everything in the physical universe.
1: Oh, that was pretty good.
3: Oh, you got it. <laughs> you yeah. got it. You think I, you got it? I, 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 you want to yeah. throw it back? Well, Yeah,
0: tell
1: us. Yeah. So just, oh, string theory is is you're, you're uh, attempting to unify—that's your word—the uh, <laughs> theory of relativity and quantum physics. That we said, so that you can use you can you have one sort of language to describe all of it.
3: Whoa, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. All
1: right, do so you want to do another one?
3: Pretty good. Do, do, a hard,
1: do a harder one? <laughs> harder
0: than that? Harder than that? You want something harder than that? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Computational biology. Yeah, I'll let you do that one, Alan.
0: Yeah, I already covered that. These are like
3: really easy ones. Should we try that one again? All right, let's go. it. So, um, the universe mm-hmm. is usually thought to be all that there is. Okay. But there's a possibility that what we long thought was all there is might actually be a small part of a much grander landscape of reality populated by other realms that would be rightly called universes of their own mm-hmm. and the grand collection we would call the multiverse. That's fine. You like that one? That's all right. fine. <laughs> yeah, I told you it's going to be an easy one. We need a harder one. Dark energy. dark energy. Want to do dark energy? Dark energy. All right. So... For a long time, we thought we knew what the universe was made of. Mm -hmm. Things like particles, electrons, Mm -hmm. quarks, neutrinos.
2: I've heard of neutrinos. (laughs) You've heard of these things.
3: So these are little tiny particles of matter Mm -hmm. that we believe may not be made up of anything more fine. They may be the fundamental ingredients out of which everything is made. Little tiny things. And we thought that that was what the universe was made of. But we've now learned that there is this energy suffusing space, which when you put into Einstein's... (laughs) We believe that there is this substance that is everywhere in the universe, every nook and cranny of the universe, and when this energy is in Einstein's general theory of relativity... (laughs) When this energy is put into our equations of how gravity works... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we find that this energy gives rise to a repulsive version of gravity Mm -hmm. that makes up the bulk of the universe, that's giving rise to a negative pressure that yields a negative gravity that pushes everything apart, making the expansion of space, found by Edwin Hubble in 1929, making the expansion of space speed up, driving everything in the universe apart at an ever-quickening pace.
1: Okay.
0: You throw the one back.
3: Whoa, bravo. Well,
1: no, I can't do that one back. <laughs> okay, so...
3: you sort of like Chinese yeah. food. You got it for a moment. And then. I it's got finished. it, uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I need more. Let, let, me, let me
0: say that, and I think you'll agree with this, that you haven't taught Tina everything there is to know about That's it. That's <laughs>
3: it. Now we're no, done. You're a really good <laughs> we're done. Are you
0: No, done? For, for her to be able to do work in this, to understand it at a deeper level, she would have to learn the mathematics she'd have to really work hard at it. But you may have told her enough for Tina to be interested to know more. And when we make things clear to the public, that's what I hope for first,
3: that they want to know more. I don't know, you might have to... Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. I mean, Uh, you know, know, jargon gets a very bad rap. It's vital for us scientists to have a shorthand, and that's why we use it. We don't do it to have funny-sounding words. We can communicate everything that we just spoke about here in one-tenth the time with ten times the accuracy if we make use of the actual jargon and ideas. But of course, when you're talking to the general public who's not going to go to graduate school, you want to, like you say, excite them about these ideas, so hopefully you can do it in a way that gets the essence across. Thank you so much for helping. Thank you. Ryan Green.
0: Toward the end of our conversation, Tina and I realized we shared a trait that you might not expect performers to have. We realized we were both shy. I was a shy kid, but here I could, on stage, I could be in command.
1: That makes sense. A lot of people, a lot of people in comedy I know are very shy. Are you shy? Very shy. I am. Yeah.
0: Yeah, me too. I have have a lot of social anxiety. Someone from the audience had a question for us. What can you do about that? How can you turn making a toast at a wedding or making a presentation at work or or any kind of public speaking into a pleasure instead of an invitation to an anxiety attack?
1: One aha moment that I can think first thing I thought of as a happened during improvisation was on stage years ago at the Second City. I was in an improv set, which we would take suggestions from the audience and improvise for 30 minutes, different things. And I was in a scene with my friend Rachel Dratch and my friend Scott Adsit, and it was going so badly it was we were just bombing so hard and i remember looking deeply into rachel's eyes and she she would clutch me what we called her mouse paw her tiny little hand was clutching <laughs> me and we were continuing the scene but there was a whole other level of communication of like dear god we are bombing and the realization for me was that my greatest fear was being realized we were sweating bombing it was going terribly and the realization was that after it was over we were still alive and we would live to fight again another day and so for me it's the thing of taking the my what is my greatest fear what what am i so nervous will happen that everyone will boo or no one will pay attention like that even if that happens you are fine you will be fine so if that helps you at all with your (laughs) public speaking so
0: do you find that that helps you in life too
1: yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the biggest things you get out of improvisation work is uh, you abandon a fear of embarrassment. Yeah. And, you know, my friend Amy Poehler talks a lot about, she talks a lot about um, uh, improv help, it, it, having the courage to kind of break the social protocol, which is something that none of us have. You have to be not afraid of embarrassment to say, like, nope, I'm breaking the social yeah. uh, rules here and saying whatever and so I think improvisation helps you with that stuff
0: yeah I find too it seems uh, allied with that that you get more used to the idea that something from your unconscious is going to come up and it's going to be okay no matter what it is Mm -hmm. whereas without that freedom that you get from knowing it's going to be okay, even yeah. if it's even if it's something bad that happens. Ever you say something terrible, it's going to be okay because in the long run, what difference does it make? It
1: doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're
0: still going to be there.
1: Yep, you're just going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like that's a good one to go out on. I think we should be done, right?
0: I'm very happy to end on holding up the book. That's
1: <laughs> I'm now available. Thank you. you. I had such a good time. That was so fun.
0: But we're not finished yet. We still wanted Tina to give us seven quick answers to our seven quick questions, and she was kind enough to drop in on our studio. Tina, thank you for coming back. It's my pleasure. Oh, it's great because since you and I talked, we came up with seven questions that I ask everybody. Cool. Number one What do you wish you really understood?
1: The first thing that came to my mind was music. Oh. I wish I could read and read music and play an instrument and sing.
0: That's how I feel. Yeah. You're the first person to say that. What Now, what do you wish people understood about you?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Because I feel like in some ways I'm like, oh, we've talked too much about me as a community. <laughs> as a so group. you wish they understood <laughs> less about you. <laughs> yeah, less.
0: less. I wish they <laughs> <I> understood less. <laughs> All right what what's the strangest question anyone ever asked you?
1: What's the strangest question anyway?
0: or a really strange question to be I oh, think
1: Uh I don't know can I come back to that one? No uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's the strangest question?
0: Sounds like you're basically an easygoing person. I right? am
1: really easygoing.
0: Nothing strikes you as odd.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't. I can't. Uh, I'm stumped on that one. Okay, maybe well, something will come to me <clears throat> and we'll um, edit yeah. it and seem like I make it seem it, like I knew in the moment.
0: Yeah. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: Um, I ask. Well, a kind of counterintuitive thing is to ask them questions to try to pivot the topic.
0: And that works?
1: Sometimes. Right. Yeah. Or just, you know, fake a heart attack.
0: (laughs) I find nothing works, especially if I'm the compulsive talker. That's that's really hard.
1: Yeah. My dad was a big talker, and my friend Lauren Michaels is a pretty pretty big talker, Um, and sometimes you just have to ride it out.
0: Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy?
1: I... Can almost always dig deep, and at some point in fact, fi- you can go. You can find a little bit, but sometimes it's buried under layers and layers and layers of anger. Yeah. Um, yeah, like a couple. There's a couple famous people that I don't feel a tremendous amount of empathy for, but I'd probably rather not name them. <laughs> right.
0: Okay. I think I got it. Yeah. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon?
1: (laughs) I think bad news is best delivered in person.
0: And that's what you like?
1: I think that's the right thing to do. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So in other words, but in real real life you keep a pigeon.
1: In real life (laughs) I've a fleet of pigeons and carrier rats.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last one. What if anything would make you end a friendship?
1: Dishonesty.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, well, uh, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I really like you. Thank you for coming on the <laughs> thanks,
1: show. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. Should I try to think of the answer to the oh, other? Oh, one? okay. What okay. was it? The weirdest question?
0: Yeah. Sounds like that was it.
1: Was the weirdest question anyone answered. Yeah, that's fine. I'm trying to think. Because certainly, you know, we've all done kind of press junkets and stuff. Yeah, where we get like,
0: a lot of strange ones. Definitely. You know, if somebody asked me, I'm not sure I could remember the weirdest one.
1: I did, this was just sort of a silly one, but we did a, when the movie Mean Girls came out, uh, it came out the same time as an Olsen Twins movie called New York Minute. And I was at a Hollywood Foreign Press uh, uh, thing, and they said, uh, we watched your movie, and then we watched the Olsen Twin movie. And with the Olsen Twins movie, everyone was very laughing. But not your movie. Why?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's great. I think you got it. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Tina's an inspiration for me. She's talented, creative, and a really nice person, in spite of the fact that her Broadway show is called Mean Girls. Visit MeanGirlsOnBroadway.com for tickets. Tina and I appeared on stage together last year during the World Science Festival. And our conversation, uh, some of it anyway, is what you heard in this podcast. My thanks goes out to all the people who organized and produced that event. And I thank them for providing us with the audio of our interview. The World Science Festival takes place every year in New York, and I really advise you to check it out. It's an amazing thing. Five days of 50 events that combine art and science. You can find more about the World Science Festival at worldsciencefestival.org. This episode of Clear and Vivid was produced by my friend and longtime producer Graham Shedd. Graham and I have worked together for more than 20 years, including many events associated with the World Science Festival. Our associate producer is Sarah Chase, sound engineer is Dan Dezula, our tech guru is Allison Coston, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. My special thanks to John Delore, Harry Nelson, and Jared O'Connell for their in-studio assistance. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, former U.S. Senator and Master Peacemaker George Mitchell tells me what's really hard in bringing about peace. The hardest part, but the most important part of conflict resolution is to change what is in people's hearts and minds, and that takes time. It takes a lot of time. People who've lost a loved one don't forget it when a peace agreement is signed. It's hard, but George Mitchell, one of the world's most effective negotiators, has done it. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe now for free on Apple Podcasts.
3: If you have thyroid eye disease and you go through artificial tears in the blink of an eye it might be time to discover another treatment option. To learn more, visit TreatMyTed.com. That's TreatMyTed.com.